turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We've been uh, working through the book of Hebrews together for a a few weeks now. We're going to be continuing on. And uh, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 14 of chapter 4 through verse 10 of chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. This is the Word of God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us, then, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes his honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Before we start working through this passage together, we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's direction and assistance. Uh, Just one quick comment uh, before we do that. Uh, In Sunday school, the last number of months, uh, we've been discussing various issues about hermeneutics, that is, how to read the Bible. We've been looking at different uh, types of literary genres and books. Uh, Next week, we're going to start in Sunday school looking at uh, how to read the book of Revelation. And so if you have any interest in that, not that you ought to be more interested in that than you are interested in any, any of the other pa- parts of the Word of God, uh, but if, you, if you're interested in uh, the topic of how to read the book of Revelation, uh, we'll be talking about that next Sunday morning and probably for a few weeks following, starting at 9.30. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would ask that uh, your Spirit would 
be with us in a very powerful and real way as you open up your word. Father, this word comes directly from your mouth, breathed out, and we know that it is living and powerful. We pray that your Spirit will apply it uh, with precision in our lives, form us into the image of Christ, and strengthen our souls on the basis of what you have for us this morning. Help us also as we celebrate communion together, as we come to your table, help us to be mindful in a, a fresh way of what these things signify and what they mean for us as your children. Father, we pray that Everyone here in this building, whether they're in this room currently or in the nursery or uh, with the Children for Children's Church, we just pray that you will uh, draw them close to yourself. We pray that uh, from the youngest uh, child here, uh, we pray that they will have a sense of your spirit uh, working inside of their hearts. Lord, we know that uh, you, you gave your spirit to John the Baptist in the womb. And we pray that, Lord, we pray that uh, all the children here will know you from uh, the earliest age, that you'll draw them to yourself in, in your saving grace. We thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you for your grace that is given to us in covenant through your eternal counsels and through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is redemption, that there is forgiveness. Thank you that your, your law can be written on our minds and hearts so we can be internally prompted to obey you with joy. Father, for those who are away, for those who are sick today, uh, we pray that your hand will be upon them, that you'll draw them close to yourself, that you'll provide healing uh, where healing is needed. And we ask that you will enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, open your word. Give us attentive hearts, open minds. Make us quick to listen and quick to apply. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just from the very beginning, I'll mention this passage a couple times uh, mentions Melchizedek. Uh, if you're not overly familiar with Melchizedek, that's fine. Uh, the author is going to have a bit of an extended discussion of this Melchizedek figure in chapter 7. So we're going to be getting there, Lord willing, uh, in a couple weeks. It's also, in some ways, okay if you're even just not overly familiar with the idea of a high priest. The next few chapters in Hebrews is going to talk about high priests a lot and the significance of having a high priest. And for us, uh, probably most of us are familiar with the high priest only from reading Scripture, uh, from reading particularly the Pentateuch. And so we're aware that this, there was this high priest figure who was extraordinarily important in Israel in the Old Testament but none of us probably uh, have very much experience with a human mediator who sort of stands between us and God. Uh, in one sense, we know that Jesus does that for us. We'll be talking about that uh, in due course. But in terms of going to a building and being met by a person who then takes your offering on your behalf, takes it to God while you can't watch, and then comes in and tells you that they've successfully offered something on your behalf to God, which you had brought to that building, is probably a little foreign to our experience. Now, if you live with that, though, if you had that again and again and again and again, one of the lessons which would be deeply ingrained in your mind and in your experience was, 
I cannot come to God directly on my own. I cannot bring a sacrifice all the way to God himself. I can bring an offering, I can bring a sacrifice to someone who then takes it on my behalf to God, but there needs to be someone in between myself and the Lord. There, there literally needs to be a middleman who gets my offering to God. And the lesson was this. As someone who's a sinner, and as with a God who is so holy, we simply are not able to come sort of traipsing into his presence, no matter how sincere we are, uh, no matter how sanctified we are, uh, no matter how much we love God, none of us have the ability to just come into the presence of a holy God on our own. There needs to be someone who stands between us and God. There needs to be a mediator. There needs to be someone who represents us to God. Without that individual between us and God, as a sinner, I will never have any ability ever to come into the presence of God. I need a mediator. I need a go-between, and that's what the high priest did. He represented the people to God through sacrifice, particularly Leviticus 16, uh, on the Day of Atonement. Now, Again, for us, that might seem like, like a, a bit of a, almost a history lesson or, or, or a history of religion because we've never had that experience. But for centuries, for long centuries, for over a thousand years, this was the experience of Israel. Year after year after year, every time you went to the tabernacle, which then became the temple, every time you went to the temple or tabernacle to bring an offering to God, you were always met at the door by someone who would take your sacrifice on your behalf into the presence of God. All of those centuries upon centuries of that corporate experience proved definitively that there needed to be someone who represented sinners to God. Now, this is what the author of Hebrews is dealing with. Verse 14 says, therefore, now I will say this too, probably verses, chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 are probably well familiar to us. Uh, you've probably heard messages on those few verses alone. we be well worth preaching just on those uh, couple verses, but I want to frame it out into a bit of a wider context for you. It starts with therefore. Therefore, since we have a, since we have a great high priest, the therefore is obviously connected to the material that just went before, where you've been told in the immediate context that the Word of God is alive and active. It penetrates everything. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before Him to whom you need to give an account. In other words, the God that you have to have dealings with is the God who knows absolutely everything, and every single thing about you is laid bare in his sight. Now, I'm willing to bet that if we took, I'll be really generous for you, I won't just say this morning, let's give it a month. If we took the last month of your life and projected up on the screen your worst moments, your actions, your words. What about your thoughts? The things that went on inside of your mind. If just the last month, 
of your life was laid bare. And we were able to announce, just so you know, this week it's, um, I won't, I won't send anyone out. It, it's you, you know, you as an individual. Your, your life is going to go up on that screen. I'll give you 30 seconds. If it was you, how fast would you be out the door, you know, hoping your car had enough gas to get across the border? You know, just out of here. You know, if everything's laid bare, that's something that we probably don't want anyone to know about at all. And so the, the author is saying this, listen, therefore, because everything in your life is laid bare before God, a perfectly holy being who doesn't compromise his standards of righteousness or justice at all, who doesn't tolerate sin or deviation from his standards of perfection in the smallest bit, because of that, and because we have a great high priest, great meaning far excelling all of the other ones, We have a great high priest excelling all the other ones who's ascended into heaven. That is, he's drawing, obviously, if 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 you've been with us so far, if you're familiar with the the earlier chapters of Hebrews, he's drawing on themes he's already discussed. The the great son of God has triumphed. The great son of God has, has gone through the suffering of an atoning death and has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, he has triumphed and he has conquered. And so because he's ascended into heaven, we can hold firmly to the faith we profess. And that faith is not in our own goodness. Our, that faith is not that we have a religion where if we just check all of the right boxes and do all of the right things and just show up for enough Sundays and, and, and give enough percentage of our money, then somehow we'll make it on our own. Our faith is Jesus did it for us. Jesus took the penalty for our sin. He he paid it all in his death. And in union with him, his death is in our behalf and his resurrection is in our behalf as well. And so is his exaltation. So is his ascension. So is the fact that he reigns and sits at the right hand of God. That's for us too. It's all for us. So hold on to that. Because it's either Jesus or it's you. You'll either be judged on the basis of the perfect life of Christ or you'll be judged on the life that you lived. Everything will be laid bare. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sit. Now this is basically almost a verbatim repetition of what you find in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, which we've dealt with that uh, then. I'm not going to say much about this now, except again, the reminder is, as awesome and as transcendent and as exalted as Jesus is, that does not in any way lessen his genuine humanity. Fully God and fully man. And so his deity does not compromise his humanity. In his humanity, he understands precisely the full force of the temptation of sin. And he alone understands the full force of it because he bore through every temptation all the way to the end. Whereas for most of us, you know, we haven't hardly borne through any temptation to the end. We've given in. We've given in before the full weight was felt, but Jesus felt the full weight of every temptation, and yet didn't fail in weakness at any point. Yet he did not sin. 
So we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, who understands our weaknesses, yet he never sinned. So this is one of the beautiful things. About this. We do not have a savior who just sort of part of a, of a self-support group where we all sit around and share all of our failures. Jesus can't be part of that group because he has no failures to share. You know, all the rest of us can. All the rest of us have, have multiple failures and multiple sins. We, we can share them all day long. And Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted, but he doesn't know what it's like to fail. He doesn't know what it's like to succumb. He doesn't know what it's like to sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin so. Because of that, because of his nature as a high priest who has empathy and sympathy and understanding for our condition, yet also never sinned, let us, on that basis, approach God's throne of grace. If you have to, Revelation 4 makes this very clear, if you have to approach the throne of God on the basis of your own righteousness, you're dead. You have no right whatsoever on your own, in your own merit, to approach the throne of God. The throne of God, Revelation 4 makes very clear, is a throne of holiness. Jake mentioned this in Isaiah 6. It is a throne of, of awesome holiness. And Isaiah sees God and he, he, and he doesn't go strolling up. He, he, he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. He feels he's going to die in the presence of God. Until in terms of metaphorical image, the, the angel comes with a, with a coal from the altar of atonement and touches his lips and purifies him. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. In other words, unless there is someone who takes away our sin and our guilt, there is no access to the throne of God. God's throne is a a throne of justice and judgment and wrath. But because of what Jesus has done, the sovereign throne of a holy God is a throne characterized by grace, by undeserved, unmerited, in fact, in spite of our demerit, God blesses us again and again and again and again. And so since we have this kind of high priest, the argument is we don't just come to an earthly building. We come into the very throne room of God. And our high priest, our mediator, brings us all the way into the very throne room of God. We now have full access to him. And we find, because our sin has been taken care of by Jesus, that the throne of God is a throne overflowing with grace for us. Not destruction, not wrath. It's a throne of grace. And not only is that the case, but you actually, shockingly, get to come with confidence. That is, there is freedom here to come into the very presence of the throne of God in heaven. You can go there if you have the right mediator and guide to bring you there. You can go with full, absolute confidence into the throne room of God himself if you know Jesus Christ, if he's with you. If you go accompanied by him, you have nothing to fear even in the very presence of the maximally revealed holiness 
of Almighty God. That is staggering. That that is possible. In the Old Covenant, we'll see more about this, you couldn't even go into the room in the temple where God was. And now through Jesus, you get to go right into his presence in heaven. Well, what's the difference? It's not that we're less sinful. It's that we have a great high priest. They didn't. We have a priest who actually atoned for sin. We have a priest who didn't have any sin on his own, who gets us all the way to glory. So, go to the uh, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, this is very general. Our time of need, what is that? It may be person-specific. It may vary in circumstances. But the glorious thing here is that if you need help, if you need mercy, and you need grace, at one level, there's a, there is a universality here that we all need this in terms of salvation. We all need mercy and grace in the time of our need of sin, and, and we need to be liberated from that. But then there are all kinds of other problems that creep up in life continually. There are all kinds of things that are overwhelming. We keep going to the same source. We keep going to the throne of God. We find mercy and grace in our time of need. And you go boldly, not presumptuously, but boldly and with confidence. Now, the author now in chapter 5 begins to talk a little bit more about what high priests do. How do you become a high priest? Is this uh, likely not many of you, when you were looking at going off to college or university or career path, you know, you probably didn't sit down with a guidance counselor in your high school. They said, you know what? One really good career path would be high priest, right? Is, you know, so what is the job description? How do you become one of these guys and what do you do? Well, every high priest is selected from among the people and quick job description is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, first, to be a high priest, you have to be human. Now, most here are going to qualify for that, okay? So, so you have to be human. That's the first thing. A real high priest has got to be human. Now, this is just one of the reasons, just one, why the author has already talked about the incarnation. That is, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumes a full set of human attributes. That is, the second person in the Trinity, who is fully God, adds to his deity a full human nature. They're not mixed. It's not a hybrid. It's, he's still fully God and fully a human being. Now, one of the reasons why this is necessary is the high priest had to be chosen from among the people. God was not his own high priest because there needed to be someone in between God and sinners. And that person had to be human, chosen from among the people. So the Son of God, one of the reasons he becomes a human being is so that he can actually be the high priest. Now, this will come together in chapter 10. Fascinatingly, 
where Jesus needs to become a human being so that he can be both high priest and sacrifice. Both are absolutely required. But here, the accent is, if he's not a human being, he can't be high priest. And the high priest is to represent the people. This is the job description. You need to be, you need to be selected by God from amongst the people, and then you represent the people. You're their mediator in matters related to God, and you offer sacrifices for sins. Of course, it's sin and our sins that keep us away from God. It's our sins that make it impossible for us to go into God's presence on our own. Now, that's what he does, but what's he to be like? Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. So he needs to be gentle. These are the sorts of things that that sort of spill over uh, into eldership in the New Testament. Let's be careful because the high priest needs to the high priest and the priests are dealing with sacrifices for sin all the time. And unless there's a unless there's a remembrance of your own personal weakness, it'd be really easy just to get really bitter. Just to get really angry. Here comes so and so with their sacrifice for that sin again. You know, you just start to get tired of it. You know, you start to get tired of dealing with all the dirt, tired of dealing with all the muck, tired of being the mediator all the time. And you just want to tell people, you know, just just smarten up. And yet, the high priest is to be gentle. Why? Well, because he's representing the people to God, but in many ways, he's also representing God to the people. And he should remember that he's subject to weakness just like they are. He sins just like they do. If it wasn't for the mercy and grace of God, there wouldn't be anyone who found acceptance with him in any way. There are people who are ignorant and are going astray, and they need to be dealt with gently and brought to God. No one takes his honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, You can't just decide that you're going to be high priest. You can't just decide to be a priest. God is the one who calls you. Now, how is it then that Jesus, the Son of God, operates as high priest? Well, he needs to be a person. He needs to represent the people to God through sacrifice. And he needs to be called. Now, interestingly enough, As vital as the high priest role is, because Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, one of the things that is somewhat, it's just so obvious as part of the environment of the Gospels, we may not sort of notice, Jesus never does any priestly, he he doesn't do any priestly Levitical functions. That is, you, you... See him purify the temple, yes. And he operates, obviously, as the great high priest in terms of sacrificing himself on the cross. But he's not serving in the temple. He's just not doing that. So how is it that he became the great high priest when he didn't serve as a priest at all in in sort of a literal Levitical sense in the Gospels? Well, 
in just the same way that no one takes this upon themselves, Jesus didn't take it upon himself either. Jesus was called by God to receive the glory of being our high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The first quote, you are my son, today I become your father, is from Psalm 2-7. We've seen that already in Hebrews. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, how are these connected? Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm for the Davidic king. The Davidic king comes from David. And David is from which tribe? Judah. The priests only come from which tribe? Levi. You have a problem. You have a problem when you get to Jesus. Jesus is descended from David. He's not descended from Levi. The priests come from Levi. Jesus comes from Judah. No one ever born in the tribe of Judah was ever a priest. Ever. So how do you sort that out? Well, the author will sort it out a little bit more in chapter 7. But the idea here is this. Psalm 2 has already been applied to the Son, that is, to Jesus. Psalm 2 is about the coronation and ascension to the throne of the Davidic king. It's already fulfilled by Christ. Now, Psalm 110, verse 4, is not the first verse of Psalm 110. That that honor goes to verse 1. And that verse says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the verse Jesus quotes to baffle his opponents in his Passion Week. They're asking him, they're besieging him with questions. Jesus finally answers all their questions and finally says, Okay, I have a question for you. How can David's, how can the Messiah be David's son? David calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. That is, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Well, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4 is said to the exact same person that the Lord addressed as Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, the priest in 110.4 is the same figure as the one who is installed to reign forever at the right hand of God himself in verse 1. The king reigns. The king who reigns is appointed by God to be high priest. In other words, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are both speaking of the same figure who's the king who rules and reigns. Psalm 110 verse 4 adds this, and the king who rules and reigns from David's line, God also appoints as high priest. And he's a high priest forever. But not from Levi. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Just hang on to that. It's so important. It's repeated in verse 10. He was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Then there's going to be a bit of a a parenthetical discussion about warnings about falling away. And then chapter 7 will pick up again the discussion of Melchizedek. 
So when we get to seven, we'll look at how this Melchizedek figure works and how Christ is a priest in this order, etc. The idea here, the only one that you need to recognize is this. God had already said in Psalm 110, long, long, long before Christ, and a long, long, long time after the Levitical priests had been functioning, God said, I am going to have someone who rules and reigns at my right hand who is going to be high priest. They are going to bring the position of king and priest together, and it won't be someone from Levi. It will be someone in a different order altogether, the order, the priestly order of Melchizedek. And what you find, actually, because Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, is what you find is actually the, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, that type of priesthood, came before Levi. That chronology is very, very important. So Christ will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, this is part of all of Christ's life, but probably the the, the greatest example of this that we have recorded is, is Gethsemane. Christ praying out in agony, not because of the physical pain he would experience, although that would be part of it, but there were people who stoically went to the cross. It wasn't the physical pain, it was bearing the wrath of God for sin. And and that that really is, the, the pain of Calvary is not in the first instance the physical gore. And sometimes we've, we've, emphasize that so much in trying to be gritty about the cross or in some of our some of our movies the whole accent has been on the physical suffering the physical suffering is a component of it yes but the real agony for christ is whatever it was to bear sin when the father poured his wrath out upon christ in our place that was the agony of calvary which is why even though there were tens of thousands of people crucified in the roman world only christ endured the cross because his crucifixion his cross was a transaction with god the father providing atonement no one else who died on a cross ever experienced that The physical pain they experienced, yes. The shame, yes. But bearing the wrath of God, only Jesus experienced that. He cried out, cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard. Now, fascinating. This is something to to stalk away, to, to, to while away in your mind a little bit. The text says he was saved from death, and he was saved from death. But he died. That is, he wasn't exempted from death. He was saved from death because he conquered death. He was saved from death by resurrection. But he wasn't spared from death. He didn't avoid death. He cried out fervently with loud cries and tears, and God heard him, and God saved him from death, but he still died. God will save you from your trials, but he might not exempt you from them. What he did with Christ is he got Christ all the way through it and out triumphantly on the other side. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So even though he was the son of God, well established in Hebrews 1, 
He learned how to obey as a man. I mean, the Gospel of Luke tells us in two places that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and with man. That is, as a real human being, Jesus learned. He, he wasn't born as a human being with omniscience. Human beings don't have omniscience. Uh, we, we don't have the cranial capacity for it. Uh, o- only an infinite God, only deity, can be omniscient. So was, you know, it's kind of a trick question in some ways. Well, well, was Jesus omniscient? Well, yes and no. In the deity, yes. In the humanity, no. He learned as he grew. He, would have been, he, he wasn't born fully literate. He learned to read. He was taught things by Joseph that he didn't know in terms of how to be a carpenter. He grew in wisdom and in stature. He was always perfect. For whatever capacity a two-year-old is, he was always perfect as a two-year-old. And he's always perfect as a four-year-old. And he's always perfect as a 13-year-old. Must have driven all the neighborhood parents crazy, right? He was always perfect. But a two-year-old is a two-year-old, not a 50-year-old. And so he learned and he grew. Even as our Savior, as he walked obediently with God, he was made perfect as our Savior. Earning righteousness, every temptation defeating it, growing in human righteousness and even ability. So that through suffering and through never sinning in the face of suffering, he becomes perfect for us as our substitute, perfectly capable of laying down his life for us, a perfect human life to trade for our imperfect ones, without blemish, without sin, without stain. And because he was made perfect through what he suffered, made as a perfect Savior for us, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Obey him here is the same as having faith in him. Faith works out in obedience. He's the source of eternal salvation. Now, just to stop for a moment and just, just savor that one just a little bit. Eternal salvation. It means that the salvation Christ provides for you from sin and shame and death lasts forever. Forever. It never ends. There will never be a time when the salvation provided by Christ expires or runs out, or you find out, you know, just several trillion odd years into eternity in the future, you find out, oh, Jesus was actually only able to save you up until now. It never runs out. It's eternal salvation. That's why there will never be another sacrifice. There will never be another high priest. There will never be another king. There will never be another Lord. There will never be another, another Savior. There is no other way to the throne of God's grace except through Jesus because the effects of his salvation are eternal. They're infinite. It's a perfect Savior, a perfect salvation that will never end. He's the source of eternal salvation. And you realize He didn't have to do any of this. God didn't need to create a world at all, let alone redeem it. God didn't need to create his ima- people in his own image, let alone save them when they ruined themselves and, and fell into sin and rebellion and wickedness. Especially at this cost. But this is what Christ has done for us. Through suffering in our behalf, 
the Son of God, serves as our high priest and becomes for us the source of eternal salvation. He's the one who brings us all the way to God. And in the throne room of God we find grace and mercy overflowing to help us in our time of need. The cost was His body and blood, blood shed for us, symbolizing His life, His body pierced with nails, again symbolizing His life, laying down His full humanity, our great high priest. The offering for sin was Himself, and it's how we get to God. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, together this morning, be mindful of this, that it's not only this sacrifice, but it's this priest who's needed to bring you to God. And he brings you all the way there with eternal salvation. I'm going to ask those who are going to help distribute these elements to come forward at this time. Uh, everyone else just take a moment to, to bow and to pray before the Lord, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together.